Not only do we give people nicknames, have you ever noticed how we also give nicknames to cities? New York is known as the Big Apple. The Windy City, that's Chicago. New Orleans is nicknamed the Big Easy. Detroit is Motor City. And Atlanta, Hot Atlanta, that's us. And God also gave a nickname to the city of Jerusalem. In chapters 22 and twice in chapter 24, God calls Jerusalem by the very unflattering nickname, the Bloody City. You see, the rulers of Jerusalem were guilty of shedding innocent blood. And God warns the bloody city of coming judgment. In fact, His warnings climax in chapter 24 when the siege and the destruction of the city actually begin. Chapter 21, though, sets the stage. We read, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem, preach against the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel. Now remember, Ezekiel is in Babylon at this time, along with King Jeconiah and the Jews that have been taken into exile by the Babylonians in 597 B.C. Ezekiel's was the second of three deportations of Jews from Jerusalem to Babel. Three times, remember, the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem. In 605, in 597, and the final siege started in 588 B.C. It ended 18 months later in the summer of 586 B.C. The siege actually began on my wife's birthday, July the 18th. 586 B.C. I don't know what all that means, but I thought I'd throw it in. The burning of the city, the destruction of the temple, all ensued. The prophecies given by Ezekiel came true. And here in chapters 21 through 23, we have the 11th hour prophecies. These were the final warnings that God issued to His people. They were uttered in August of 591 B.C., about three and a half years before the final siege of the city commenced. So God was giving a final shot across the bow, a final warning for His people, hoping that they would take heed. Notice Ezekiel directs these warnings not only against the temple, but against against all the land of Israel. And he begins in verse 3, And say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you. That's an ominous thing when God says He's against you. And I will draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off both righteous and wicked from you. Because I will cut off both righteous and wicked from you. Therefore my sword shall go out of its sheath against all flesh from south to north. That all flesh may know that I the Lord have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It shall not return anymore. Notice here, both the righteous and the wicked are going to suffer in this coming judgment. Babylonian troops are not going to knock on each door and ask every person if they've been bad or good. That's not how an invasion of this sort works. And it's true, often the righteous are affected by the temporal consequences of God's judgment. Their inconvenience, of course, is made up for by the glory of heaven But for a season, even the righteous may suffer with the people around them when God decides to judge a nation. 
In fact, if God chooses to judge our nation, Christians in America may end up victims. God's judgment doesn't always slice with the precision of a surgeon's scalpel. At times, God's judgments involve military actions or natural disasters or even economic collapses. God sets His judgments in motion, but then He he leaves them to the natural consequences you know, in terms of how they play out and how they unfold. Sometimes they cut a broad swath across the society at large. That's what happened here to the people in Jerusalem. Both the righteous and the wicked were affected. Verse 6, he tells Ezekiel, Sigh therefore, son of man, with a breaking heart, and sigh with bitterness before their eyes. Now this has happened over and over again in Ezekiel. God orders Ezekiel to act out another spiritual skit, or what we've called a living parable. Here he's to utter a sigh. He's to literally moan and groan. He's to utter a sigh with a breaking heart, from a broken heart. Hey, a sigh is a powerful sign. You're presenting a brand new idea to your boss, and he just sort of sighs. He's sending you a message. You're proposing to your girlfriend. And instead of being elated, she just kind of gives you this groan and this sigh. You're getting a message. You're preaching to a group of wonderful people. And you tell a fantastic joke. It's a real, it's a real belly, belly laugher. And yet everyone just sort of sighs. You're discouraging that preacher, trust me. When Ezekiel saw it, it got the people's attention. He says, And it shall be when they say to you, Why are you sighing? That you shall answer, Because of the news when it comes, every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming and shall be brought to pass, says the Lord God. See, when news arrives in Babylon among Ezekiel's people that Jerusalem has been destroyed, everyone will sigh. It'll break their hearts to hear of what's happened to the holy city. Notice too, it says their knees will be as weak as water. Did you know that expression, weak as water, comes from the Bible? In fact, I'm a bit of a collector of modern cliches that have biblical origins. Here's just a few. Escaped by the skin of my teeth. Did you know that comes from the Bible? Job chapter 19 verse 20. A drop in the bucket. That's from Isaiah 40 verse verse 15. Rise and shine. Isaiah 60 verse 1. Oh, I just had to catch my breath. That's Job chapter 9 verse 18. A hole in the wall. We read about that earlier in Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 7. And then, did you know the expression, a little bird told me? That's from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 20. The list goes on and on, in fact. Well, verse 8 tells us, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, say, A sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened to make a dreadful slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Should we then make mirth? It despises the scepter of my son as it does all wood. 
Now this sharp sword was the Babylonian army. Pagan troops were acting as the sword of the Lord. They were bringing about His judgment, His vengeance. Notice God says here that His sword will strike the scepter of my son. The scepter, of course, was the royal authority that belonged to His sons, the sons of David who had been promised the throne. Ultimately, the monarchy boils down to just one son, God's son, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus, is God's only begotten son. And yet the scepter, the kingly authority that belonged to David at the time of Ezekiel, he says it will go the way of wood. In other words, it will be cut to pieces like a limb going through a good wood chipper. It would just be cut to pieces. And that's what's going to happen to the dynasty of David. And he has given it to be polished that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened and it is polished to be given into the hand of the slayer. Cry and wail, son of man, for it will be against my people, against all the princes of Israel. Terrors, including the sword, will be against my people. Therefore, strike your thigh. Striking your thigh was just sort of a a symbol of disgust and angst. Because it is a testing. And what if the sword despises even the scepter? The sword shall be no more, says the Lord God. You therefore, son of man, prophesy and strike your hands together. Striking your hands was like striking your thigh. Again, it was a show of frustration and angst and mourning. When Babel comes against Jerusalem, God's people will strike their thigh and strike their hands. The problem, though, is that they won't bow their knee or humble their heart. And that was the reason God judged them. He says, the third time let the sword do double damage. It is the sword that slays, the sword that slays the great men that enters their private chambers. The third and the final Babylonian invasion would be the most decisive. The sword of the Lord, we're told, did double damage this time. King Zedekiah had acted treacherously toward the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar. He refused to submit to a Gentile's authority. And Nebuchadnezzar had had enough of these Jews in their rebellion. And so he launched this final attack. Verse 15. I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, that the heart may melt and many may stumble. Ah, it is made bright. It is grass for slaughter. Swords at the ready. Thrust right. Set your blade. Thrust left. Wherever your edge is ordered. Ezekiel is hoping that God's people get the point. That they get the point. God's judgment is inevitable. Verse 17. I also will beat my fist together and I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have spoken. God will land the knockout punch. His people Judah will go down for the count. And of course, history teaches that they did. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, appoint for yourself two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to go. Both of them shall go from the same land, make a sign, put it at the head of the road to the city. Appoint a road for the sword to go to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into fortified Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road, 
at the fork of the two roads to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the images. He looks at the liver. Ezekiel was to make a sigh and then a sign. God tells him to put a fork at the road, a road sign at the fork in the road. One arrow pointed to Ammon, or Ammon. The other in the direction of Judah and Jerusalem. Ammon's capital was Rabbah. And Nebuchadnezzar would choose his destination. Ezekiel was to put the sign at the fork in the road Nebuchadnezzar would choose. And notice how the pagan king makes his choices. He consults with occultic divination. He uses sorcery to determine which direction he chooses to go. At least that's what he thinks he's doing. He forms his battle plans according to his occult uh, techniques. And here Ezekiel mentions three forms of divination. He shakes his arrows. Apparently they would shake their arrows, you know, spout some spell over them and then throw their arrows down on the ground. And whichever way they pointed, they figured that was the direction their gods wanted them to go. And then he consults images. These images were teraphim, or good luck charms, the rabbis tell us. They said that they were actually the mummified heads of sacrificed children that they had sacrificed to these pagan gods. But then they would consult these images, these little good luck charms. For That's how Nebuchadnezzar chose how to go. And then it says that he looked at the liver. Now this was a a practice of divination that was very common in ancient times. Since the liver is full of blood, the ancients saw the liver as the source of life. And so they would sacrifice a sheep, and then they would cut out its entrails, and they would examine the liver, and they would scrutinize it. And different marks, different colorations of the liver had different meanings. It was all kind of a pseudoscience. It was kind of like astrology. It was a... a made-up version of divination that, that had been a form of sorcery by which they sought direction. Today, the name for this type of sorcery is heruspacy, her, 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 I think is how you say it, heruspacy. And so, Nebuchadnezzar, he does this. He consults his gods in these three ways. He wants to know whether he's to march to Ammon or whether he's to march to Rabbah or Ammon or to Jerusalem. So then we're told, in his right hand is the divination for Jerusalem. To set up battering rams, to call for a slaughter, to lift the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to heap up a siege mound, and to build a wall. He chooses Jerusalem. And it will be to them like a false divination in the eyes of those who have sworn oaths with them. But he will bring their iniquity to remembrance that they may be taken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered and that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your doings your sin appears because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. In other words, don't think Nebuchadnezzar, he's writing to the Jews in Jerusalem and he's saying, don't think that Nebuchadnezzar's decision to take the fork in the road to Jerusalem had anything to do with the superstition 
or the occultic practices he was consulting. Oh no, God was directing him. He was God's agent for judgment. Now it's not that God condones these kinds of pagan and occult practices. The point of the passage is that God is sovereign. He works behind the scenes. God even overrides and manipulates all things to accomplish His will. Even these occultic machinations of Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 25, a heavy judgment falls on the heir of the throne of David. At the time, that was the Jewish king Zedekiah. We're told, now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Boy, what ominous words. Hey, Zedekiah, Zedekiah, you've been living in luxury. You've been ruling over the people, but things are about to change. Nothing's going to remain the same. And the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to remove your crown. You're going to lose your royal turban, a.k.a. your crown. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown. I will make it overthrown. It shall no, be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Again, an ominous judgment. The Davidic throne will be overthrown. It will no longer exist until he comes whose right it is. In Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, before Israel even became a nation, God promised that an eternal king would come from the tribe of Judah. In 2 Chronicles chapter 17, that gets narrowed down. God identifies the king's pedigree to the family of David. So you got the tribe of Judah, you got the family of David. The Jews even referred to this coming king or the Messiah as the branch. He would be a branch of David's family tree. But since 586 BC, when Jerusalem was destroyed and when King Zedekiah was overthrown, Israel has never again had a king sitting on its throne. Babylon and Persia, those nations that come next and rule over Judah, they appointed governors, not kings. Afterwards, for a time, Judah was ruled by a clan of warrior priests called the Maccabees. Even after that, the Romans installed a puppet king. You know his name. His name was Herod. But again, he was an Idumean, or from Edom, not a, not a Jew. Even today, Israel is no longer a monarchy. It's a parliamentarian democracy with a president and a prime minister. But again, no king. After the kings of Ezekiel's time, of Jeconiah and of Zedekiah, Israel has never had a descendant of David to sit on its throne. Jewish scholars say that in 70 AD, when the Romans burned the temple to the ground, its extensive genealogical libraries were lost forever. That means that no one living after 70 AD could produce proof of their pedigree and lay claim to the throne. Not only do they don't have a king, they don't have anybody that can prove that he is of the right lineage. That means that if the Messiah had not arrived before 70 AD, there could never be a king in Israel. 
since no one could possibly prove their ancestry back to King David. That's why Matthew and Luke were so very careful to preserve the genealogies of Jesus. Through his stepfather Joseph, which is Matthew's genealogy, through his mother Mary, which is Luke's genealogy. You know, what we sometimes read and describe as boring begots is crucial information. They're actually God's means of proving that Jesus is the one spoken of by Ezekiel whose right it is to take the throne of David. The Davidic throne belongs to Jesus, and one day he'll return to rule. When Jesus was born, remember what the angel told Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And notice this, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the one who will come whose right it is. Our big concern today, it seems to be human rights. Everybody's talking about human rights. Everybody's talking about individual, personal rights. Everyone cares about their right to this or to that. But never forget that Jesus is the only one with the right to rule. He is the one who is coming whose right it is. And as you study the scriptures, you discover that his right encompasses not just the throne of David, but all the earth and heaven itself. Jesus' right to rule even accomplishes your heart, and it encompasses my heart. We've been bought by Jesus. He has won the right to rule your heart and to rule my heart. Our best choice is to surrender our rights and let Him rule over our lives. If we fight Him, we are sure to lose. And then verse 28 tells us, And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach, and say, A sword, a sword is drawn, polished for slaughter, for consuming, for flashing. I once officiated a military wedding at the Citadel in South Carolina. I took Natalie with me that weekend, and we drove over to Charleston. It was a beautiful wedding. It was full of pageantry and military etiquette and so forth. And I'll never forget the newlyweds. They passed through a line of soldiers under an arch of shiny, flashing swords. Here we're told about flashing swords. Of course, these swords flash for celebration, the swords that we saw in the citadel at that wedding flash for celebration. But these swords that Ezekiel mentions, they flash for devastation. They're sharp for slaughter. Again, the Babylonian army, they took the fork in the road to Jerusalem, not to Ammon. But what about the Ammonites? Will they escape the judgment of the Lord? This is the prophecy for them. He says, while they see false visions for you, while they divine a lie to you, to bring you on the necks of the wicked, the slain whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Return it to its sheaf. I will judge you in the place where you are created, in the land of your nativity. I will pour out my indignation on you. 
I will blow against you with the fire of my wrath and deliver you into the hands of brutal men who are skillful to destroy. Not only did the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem, they also defeated Rabbah, the Ammonite capital. But rather than slaughtering there, they put their swords back in their sheaths and they took the Ammonites back to Babylon as they did the Jews. Here we're told uh, the place of their nativity. Remember, Ammon's father was Lot, and thus he was from Babel. He says, you shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Notice another cliche with biblical origins. How many times have you heard the phrase, fuel for the fire? Did you know it came from Deuteronomy chapter 21? Chapter 22. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Now, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Yes, show her all her abominations. And here's that infamous nickname, the bloody city. The imagery occurs seven times in this chapter. He says, Then say, Thus says the Lord God, The city sheds blood in her own midst, that her time may come, and she makes idols within herself to defile herself. Rebellious, wicked people seldom stop with rejecting God's message. They resist to the extent of ejecting the messenger as well. And down through the centuries, stubborn Jews have persecuted, sometimes even murdered, the faithful men and women, the prophets and prophetesses, that God had sent to his people to awake them from their spiritual slumber. You remember Stephen asked, the Jews who stoned him in Acts chapter 7, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They had a reputation for innocent blood. Jesus said in Luke 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her name. You see, the city of Jerusalem had done plenty to earn her nickname, the bloody city. Verse 4, you have become guilty by the blood which you have shed and have defiled yourself with the idols which you have made. You have caused your days to draw near and have come to the end of your years. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all countries. Those near and those far from you will mock you as infamous and full of tumult. Look, the princes of Israel, each one has used his power to shed blood in you. In you they have made light of mother and father. In your midst they have oppressed the stranger. In you they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. In addition to their violence against the people of God, the prophets of God, and their spiritual authority, Jerusalem had resisted all authority. Even the natural authority of father and mother. You know, it's sad, but much of the message espoused by today's pop culture is similar. Shake off the oppression of authority. Just be yourself. Just march to your own drumbeat. Notice here they oppressed the stranger. They mistreated the orphan and the widow. I've heard it said, you can tell the character of a society by how it treats its weakest. You can tell the character of a society by how it treats its weakest. And when you judge America on that regard, and you factor in the sanctioning and the killing of the weakest among us, which in my mind are the unborn. Since 1973, 
Our country has killed, has aborted 58 million babies. The blood of 58 million babies are on our hands. Hey, if ever there was a bloody city, it's us. It's the United States of America. Verse 8. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. In you are men who slander to cause bloodshed. In you are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst they commit lewdness. Now Ezekiel isn't against a Saturday picnic up in the North Georgia mountains. That's not what he's talking about here. The Canaanite fertility cults, they met on the mountains, on their high places. And here we're told they met even on the Sabbath. In other words, they had zero regard for God and for His law. Ezekiel is referring to the pagan festivals associated with the people's idolatry. These cults that they, they worship the gods and the goddesses of fertility. And they did so with lewd sexual practices, orgies, all kinds of perversion. Stuff that would make modern day pornographers blush. This is where his people had gone. This is how far they had fallen. He says, in you men uncover their father's nakedness. In you they violate women who are set apart during their impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. And another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. Someone has called incest the last taboo. In Israel of Ezekiel's day, it was apparently flaunted and celebrated. Verse 12. In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. You have made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. Behold, therefore, I beat my fists at the dishonest profit which you have made and at the bloodshed which has been in your midst. Verse 14. Can, you endure, can your heart endure or can your hands remain strong in the days which I deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I will scatter you among the nations, disperse you throughout the countries, and remove your filthiness completely from you. You shall defile yourself in the sight of the nations. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. God is going to scatter the bloody city and judge them for their sin. Now, I think you'll find throughout Scripture that, generally speaking, cities are notoriously evil places. It seems that where sinners gather, sin seems to blossom. Even today, the big cities are the hothouses of immorality and blasphemy. It's interesting, God judges the bloody city by, by scattering its residents. In contrast, whenever God wants to speak to a person, what does He do? He usually draws them away to a remote, isolated place. There are exceptions, but usually holiness is bred in the country, whereas sin thrives in the city. Verse 17, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. They are all bronze, tin, iron, and lead, in the midst of a furnace, they have become dross from silver. In other words, they're like an impure mix of metals. They're contaminated. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As men gather silver, bronze, iron, lead, and tin into the midst of a furnace, 
to blow fire on it, to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my fury. And I will leave you there and melt you. Yes, I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath. And you shall be melted in its midst. As silver is melted in the midst of a furnace, so shall you be melted in its midst. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have poured out my fury on you. God will put Jerusalem through a smelting process. You know, the silver, it's heated to high temperatures. That causes the impurities to rise to the top, and that's where they're skimmed off. And then, of course, the process gets repeated as many times as is necessary to purge the silver of all its impurities. And God is saying that He is about to turn up the heat on Jerusalem. It's time for a purging. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. Understand, everyone was guilty before the Lord. The prophets, the priests, the princes, even the people. And he demonstrates this in the following verses. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. I mean, the prophets were corrupt. They were false prophets. But not just the prophets. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the clean and the unclean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. When even the priests can't even separate what's clean and what's unclean and what's holy and what's unholy, I mean, the, the, you're, in bad, you're in a bad position. But it's not just the prophets, it's not just the priests. But her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gain. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. The priests had propped up these princes as something more than they were. They were hypocrites. But then he says, Even the people of the land have used oppressions committed robbery and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. And this was the sad state of affairs. Jerusalem's prophets, her priests, her princes, even her people had all become corrupt. False prophets de delivering lying prophecies and giving religious cover to the evil princes. Greed had permeated this society. It was, they were all going to hell in a handbasket. So how did God respond to this? Notice verse 30. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy. God sought for a man. In the midst of all this corruption, God knew that the answer was a godly man. Jeremiah was in prison at the time. Ezekiel and Daniel were back in Babylon. What was needed in Jerusalem was a leader, a man who would take a stand for God. And this is the way God always works. It's been said the church is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. And this is the answer, quite frankly, for today's crisis. 
Godly men, fathers and husbands, who are willing to stand in the gap and take responsibility for their families and their wives and their kids and their communities and their churches. Men who are tired of being like boys and blaming their problems on somebody else, but men who are willing to stand up and be men. Men who are willing to build walls of protection, walls of morality and spirituality around those under their care. This is what God sees as the answer to this moral crisis. Sadly, God shares with Ezekiel the results of his search. I sought for a man, he says, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. And I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. Ultimately, ultimately, only one man can fill the gap between God and men. And that's the man, Christ Jesus. That's what Paul wrote to Timothy. Only Jesus is the bridge between a holy God and sinful men. In an atoning sense, Jesus is the man that God would find. But in a diplomatic sense... We're all called to be that man. Paul calls each of us ambassadors for Christ. And in a world where folks have lost sight of God, it's you and I. We're the ones who can point those people back to Him. You and I can fill the gap. We can represent God to man and we can intercede for man before God. You remember Moses was a man who stood in the gap. He loved God, but he also loved people. He never turned his back on God, and Moses never forgot Israel. He was loyal to both. You could say Moses lived in the gap. He declared God's will to Israel, and he pleaded for Israel before God. He lived with one foot on earth, and he lived with another foot in heaven. And Moses is an example of how it only takes one. You see, God is looking for a man, not necessarily men. You see, God never begins with a committee or with a board. No, He starts with a man. He starts with one person who will dare to make a difference. He sets that person's heart on fire, and then others rally around Him, and He works through them. Perhaps in your family, at your work, in your community, among your friends, perhaps you are the one who can be that person who stands in the gap, who represents God to man and intercedes on behalf of man to God. Chapter 23. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They committed harlotry in Egypt. They committed harlotry in their youth Their breasts were there embraced. Their virgin bosom was there pressed. Their names? Ohalah, the elder, and Ohalabah, her sister. They were mine, and they bore sons and daughters. And And who are they? Who are these sisters? As for their names, Samaria is Ohola, and Jerusalem is Ohalabah. Here is the sad story of two sisters who become sluts. These sisters were the capital cities of the Hebrews. Samaria, or Ohala, was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And Oholibah, or Jerusalem, was the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. Ohola means her tent. Oholibah means my tent in her. Now remember, after the death of Solomon, the northern ten tribes succeeded from the southern two tribes of Judah to create a separate kingdom under their own leader. And to keep his people distinct, to keep his northern tribe separated from the southern tribe in Jerusalem, King Jeroboam of Israel, he concocted a rival religion. He didn't want his subjects returning to the southern kingdom and worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. And so he set up a rival system of sacrifice within his own borders. He created altars in Dan and in Bethel. He even established their own priesthood and their own festivals. Now supposedly they were still worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh. But it was no longer in the way that God wanted to be worshipped. God had been clear. He had only one temple and one sacrifice and one priesthood, the one in Jerusalem. God considered the religion of Jeroboam to be idolatry. This is why he calls Samaria Ahola, or her tent. She wasn't God's dwelling. God didn't sanction her. No, Samaria had made a tent of her own. It was of her own making. Whereas Jerusalem was a holabah, or my tent in her. God's tent, his temple, his dwelling place was in Jerusalem. Always remember this. If you forget everything else I said tonight, remember this. It is not enough to just worship God. We must always worship him in the way he wants to be worshipped. This was the sin of the northern kingdom. Supposedly they were worshipping God but in a way that was convenient for them, not in the way God wanted to be worshipped. Worship that has to be convenient to you, worship that has to be socially acceptable for you, is not real worship. Oh, it's easy to say we love God, but if we aren't willing to come to God on His own terms, then our love is suspect. Well, verse 5 continues the story of Samaria. Ohola played the harlot, even though she was mine. And she lusted for her lovers, the neighboring Assyrians, who were clothed in purple, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. Thus she committed harlotry with them, all of them choice men of Assyria. And with all for whom she lusted, with all their idols, she defiled herself. She was never given up, she had never given up her harlotry brought from Egypt. For in her youth they had lain with her, pressed her virgin bosom, and poured out their immorality upon her. And as is often the case in Scripture here, God uses sexual infidelity to illustrate spiritual unfaithfulness. You see, Israel had been wed to God, but they broke their vow. In their hearts they chased after other gods and other idols and other loves. Therefore I have delivered her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, for whom she lusted. Samaria was infatuated with Assyrian idols. They uncovered her nakedness. They took away her sons and daughters and slew her with the sword. She became a byword among women, for they had executed judgment on her. And in 722 B.C., God brought judgment on Israel and Samaria at the hands 
of the Assyrians. They sacked Samaria. They scattered the people. Verse 11. Now, although her sister Oholibah saw this, she became more corrupt in her lust than she, and in her harlotry more corrupt than her sister's harlotry. Now you see, God shifts the spotlight back onto Jerusalem. She had been privy to the example set by the northern kingdom, her northern sister, and yet she had learned nothing from it. She was going after idols and false gods herself. Hegel once said, the only thing man has learned from history is that man learns nothing from history. And this was true of Old Testament Jerusalem. The Jews had the advantage of watching the plight of Samaria. They had seen her compromise and the terrible consequences that ensued. How did they miss the application? Well, he continues to speak of Jerusalem, verse 12. She lusted for the neighboring Assyrians, captains and rulers, clothed most gorgeously, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. This refers to an incident in 2 Kings chapter 16 where King Ahaz of Judah, he visited an Assyrian general in Damascus. And while he was there, he saw this beautiful altar dedicated to one of the Assyrian gods. Ahaz commissioned the priest at the time, Uriah, to replicate this altar for use in God's temple in Jerusalem. And this infuriated God. A pagan altar desecrating his temple? God says, Then I saw that she was defiled. Both took the same way, but she increased her harlotry. She looked at men portrayed on the wall, images of Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion or a yellowish red, girded with belts around their waist, flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like captains in the manner of the Babylonians of Chaldea, the land of their nativity. Jerusalem longed to be like Babel of all things. She mimicked her. Ezekiel considers Chaldea to be the birthplace of the Jews. You remember their father Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees. And soon as her eyes saw them, she lusted for them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. They wanted to be like the Babylonians. I'm afraid sometimes the church wants to be like the world. We want to try to be cool. We want to try to be hip. More so than being holy. Then the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love and they defiled her with their immorality. So she was defiled by them and alienated herself from them. She revealed her harlotry and uncovered her nakedness. Then I alienated myself from her as I had alienated myself from her sister. Yet she multiplied her harlotry in calling to remembrance the days of her youth when she had played the harlot in the land of Egypt. The spiritual infidelity of Jerusalem, her idolatry, was ultimately worse than Samaria's. She had cut herself off from God, and now God has cut himself off from her. Verse 20, For she lusted for her paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys, and whose issue is like the issue of horses. In other words, Jerusalem acted like a wild donkey in heat. She was just consumed with lust, any perversion, any tease, just to excite her. You remember what we read back in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 25? This is how Ezekiel put it. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street 
and made your beauty abominable, and you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. That's how God saw Jerusalem's idolatry. Thus you called to remembrance the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians pressed your bosom because of your youthful breasts. God traces their spiritual promiscuity all the way back to Egypt. There they worshiped the idols of their oppressors. Therefore, Aholabah, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stir up your lovers against you, from whom you have alienated yourself, and I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians, all the Chaldeans, Pekod, Shoah, Koah. We don't know who these people are. Maybe they were other nations. Maybe they were Babylonian generals, perhaps. All the Assyrians with them, all of them desirable young men, governors and rulers, captains and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. And they shall come against you with chariots, wagons, and war horses, with a horde of people. They shall array against you buckler, shield, and helmet all around. I will delegate judgment to them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. I will set my jealousy against you, and they shall deal furiously with you. They shall remove your nose and your ears, and your remnant shall fall by the sword. They shall take your sons and your daughters, and your remnant shall be devoured by fire. The conquering armies were generally very cruel to their defeated foes. To the point of cutting off appendages like noses and ears, or slaughtering the heirs to the throne, the king's sons. And the punishment inflicted on a conquered king was often similar to the punishment dealt to a prostitute. Often to punish the prostitute, her beauty, her nose, or her ears would be disfigured. And God is saying to Jerusalem, since you've played the prostitute, don't be surprised if the Babylonians treat you like one. Verse 26. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewelry. Thus I will make you cease your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt so that you will not lift your eyes to them nor remember Egypt anymore. For thus says the Lord God, Surely I will deliver you into the hand of those you hate, into the hand of those from whom you alienated yourself. They will deal hatefully with you, take away all you have worked for and leave you naked and bare. The nakedness of your harlotry shall be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotry. I will do these things to you because you have gone as a harlot after the Gentiles, because you have become defiled by their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister. Therefore, I will put her cup in your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink of your sister's cup, the deep and wide one, you shall be laughed to scorn and held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink and drain it. You shall break its shards and tear at your own breast. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, therefore you shall bear the penalty of your lewdness and your harlotry. Wow. Jerusalem is headed for serious judgment. Don't think that God will watch his bride prostitute herself over and over again, bringing shame to his name and not respond. There comes a point when he punishes. 
And it's interesting. You know, you, you get the impression here. He's speaking in notes of finality. That he is going to stop her, his bride from whoring after other gods. And, and did you know the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the following captivity? It did the job. You know, when Israel comes back, when the Jews come back to the land of Judah and, and rebuild Jerusalem, they never again resort to idolatry. They have other problems, self-righteousness and other things. But they don't fall back into the trap that they were in before. This is God's way of purging His people of the spiritual adultery that they had committed. And note a cause for their sin. Notice in verse 35, He says, Because you have forgotten Me. She was guilty of the sin of forgetfulness. Isn't it interesting how a subtle sin like forgetfulness can cause such great horror? Did you hear about the man who discovered the cure for amnesia? Only one problem, he forgot what it was. Sorry about that. And the children of Israel, they had so much to remember. They had had so much they could recall of God's faithfulness, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, water from the rock. Think of the miracles they saw. But even miracles from God do you no good if you don't remember them. I wonder how many of us have forgotten the miracles that God's worked in our lives. Just last month, we were rejoicing over a miracle. Now circumstances have changed. We're once again bound up in fear, crying out to God. Hey, remember the miracles. If God did it once, He'll do it again. Don't forget Him. One of the keys to a strong faith is a good memory. Verse 36. The Lord also said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholabah? Then declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols and even sacrificed their sons whom they bore to me, passing them through the fire to devour them. They even stooped to the child sacrifices that were being aborted to, to Molech. Moreover, they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For after they had slain their children for their idols, On the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And indeed thus they have done in the midst of my house. Furthermore you sent for men to come from afar to whom a messenger was sent. And they came and you washed yourself for them, painted your eyes and adorned yourself with ornaments. Like a prostitute. These sisters, they were flirts. They courted the favor of these pagans and their gods. Verse 41. You sat on a stately couch with a table prepared before it on which you had set my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her and Sabians were brought from the wilderness with men of the common sort who put bracelets on their wrists and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said concerning her who had grown old in adulteries, will they commit harlotry with with her now and she with them? Yet they went into her. As men go in to a woman who plays the harlot, thus they went in to Ahola and Aholabah, the lewd women. The final days of both Samaria and Jerusalem were full of political intrigue, full of compromise. Both kings bowed to the idols of the pagan nations that were threatening them, hoping to sort of stave off their invading armies. 
All the while, they never remembered to trust in God. God took it as an insult. But righteous men will judge them after the manner of adulteresses and after the manner of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses and blood is on their hand. Once again, the nickname that God gives for Jerusalem, the bloody city. You know, in the Bible, adultery is equated with the shedding of blood. It's a violent crime, really. Malachi 2 verse 16 reads, For the Lord God of Israel says that He hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. You know, if you've ever been the victim of adultery, or if you've ever gone through a divorce, you know how emotionally violent it can be. Part of you gets ripped away when a marriage comes unraveled. You know, in marriage, two become one. The two don't become one again without some tearing and without some violence. It's devastating. And here God has these same emotions towards His people as they've fallen into adultery and as they've turned their back on Him. Chapter ends, For thus says the Lord God, Bring up an assembly against them, give them up to trouble and plunder. The assembly shall stone them with stones and execute them with swords. They shall slay their sons and their daughters and burn their houses with fire. Thus I will cause lewdness to cease from the land, that all women may be taught not to practice your lewdness. They shall repay you for your lewdness, and you shall pay for your idolatrous sins. And then you shall know that I am the Lord God. In the end, the two sisters will learn the hard way not to play the harlot and to forsake the Lord their God.